Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Um, we are going to uh, finish our series in 1 Thessalonians. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you take it out and meet me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Keep it raised high. One of the guys will be able to get you a Bible. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Merry Christmas. Keep it. If you do own one but you forgot it, go ahead and raise your hand and they'll get you one. This is not Merry Christmas to you. Give it back. All right? Um, this has been an interesting day for me, a fun day, I would say. Uh, yesterday, I got a call from Justin at 2 o'clock, uh, letting me know that he wasn't going to be able to teach. Justin was supposed to teach all day today in Arcadia and Tempe. Uh, so actually, I got a text saying that he couldn't teach because he was losing his voice. And I thought, oh, this would be fun. And I said, okay, what, what are we teaching on? Something good, easy, goes, oh, quenching the spirit and prophecies. I'm like, oh, something we talk about all the time here at Redemption. So we should have a lot of fun this, 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 uh, this evening. So this morning, <clears throat> I was in Arcadia, and then I drove back here and Totten Tempe, got back to Arcadia, already still trying to figure out what the heck I was going to say, and um, I forgot my notes when I got to Arcadia. So I went up there and I said, hey, the message is going to be spirit-led, and we'll see what happens, and uh, it was a good time, a lot of, really, really good time. So I don't, honestly, I am excited to teach on what we're teaching on. It's the last section of scripture. Um, we're going to look at just four verses in this last uh, chapter of 1 Thessalonians um, as we close our series. And again, it is Don't Quench the Spirit. And so um, just to let you know from the outset, what we're going to do is spend the bulk of our time talking about the Holy Spirit. And then from there, transitioning and then looking at the roles of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, and then, and then take the four imperatives that Paul gives us here. Um, but I think it would be impossible for us, or at least not healthy for us, to jump into the text without laying a foundation for many for the first time. And then for some, laying a foundation, um, just a relaying of the foundation of who the Holy Spirit and what, it, what he does in our life and the role of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we'll get a chance to do uh, this evening. Um, so before we jump in the text, would you guys um, you pray with me? Before you pray, I got a couple things I want to announce to you. First, Christmas Eve... Um, <clears throat> Christmas Eve services. Next Saturday, we are having two Christmas Eve services. We'll be here at 4 p.m. There will be child care for the 4 p.m. service only, and then the ages are 1 to 3. And so if you have little bitty babies, you can bring the babies in with you, and you have kids older than three, bring the kids in with you. Listen, don't try to treat the system, cheat the system because you don't want to be with your kid. Oh, he's really three, and the kid's got a mustache. He's smoking a cigarette. Like, listen, <laughs> don't... One to three, all right? That's going to be for the 4 p.m. And then 11 p.m. service, we'll have no child care, and that'll be a really, really great time, uh, especially for you guys who are used to going midnight mass or midnight services. It'd be great for us to usher in Christmas together uh, during that late service. So we hope to see you guys, 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. When I'm done today, we'll also have today is our, our Maggie's Place uh, giving. So above and beyond our normal tithing and offerings, we will, we will accept a gathering or a giving today for Maggie's Place, and Vince will come and lead us in that. Uh, that's, that's the announcements that I have. So now we will pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to, to do work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this great opportunity to come to your word. And as we come to your word, God, I pray that you would take our, our minds and take the Holy Spirit, illuminate the, the text to us tonight. Lord, we confess that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, Lord, um, that is a person of the Trinity that, that we don't know all too well. So God, would you teach us? And would you lay a firm biblical foundation of the Holy Spirit that we may walk in the truth of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit as individuals, as a community, and as a body of believers. God, we thank you for the time that you have set apart for us this Sunday as we have fellowship with your spirit because of the work of your son, Jesus, um, because of your great doing and your infinite love that you have for us. It's in that great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
Um, you hear in church language people saying being sensitive to the Spirit or being led with the Spirit or Spirit-led or Spirit-filled churches. Um, and when you think of Spirit-filled churches, there's certain things that sometimes that go along with that. Um, churches that people are more expressive doing music and musically and worship. And so that means some of you guys may have come from churches like that where maybe there's more hand raising and there's a lot of swaying side to side and, um, and some, mm, yeah, mm, mm, praying. I mean, whatever it may be. If you grew up in those churches, you know what I mean. There's nothing wrong with that. Usually you sing songs over and over and, and over again, and there's nothing wrong with that either um, sometimes. But the problem, though, is with churches like that, not the churches themselves, but when we think that somehow the only way that we could be spirit-filled or spirit-led is if somehow we are more emotional or expressive in our, the ways that we worship God. And I think that's dangerous. Um, my, my wife grew up going to a normal Bible-teaching church, and then when she came to college, she went to a Bible-teaching church. And then when she moved um, out to the Southeast Valley, she was looking for a church, and the church that she landed in and became a member of was a church that was more like that. Um, in this church, this church said that uh, the theology was that you need to speak in tongues and, and maybe have a gift of prophecy in order to have evidence that, that God was working in your life. And what, what that did was just make my wife feel really um, insecure, um, one, she's not an emotional responder. That, that's not her. I, I always tell people that the characteristic of God that my wife um, displays is the immutability of God, meaning that God doesn't change. My wife doesn't change very often. She doesn't go too high, doesn't too low. So when she's singing, she just sings. Me, on the other hand, I'm all over the place. I'm a mess. I sing, I dance, fight, laugh, draw pictures, whatever it takes for me in the middle of worship, I'll, I'll do it all. We're, we're different people, right? So, so there may be a song that we sing that I, I may cry. There may be a song that my wife would love and she's passionate about it, but she's not gonna move a whole lot. They're two different people. So I, I try to explain that to say, um, that, does that mean that my wife is, is less spiritual than I am? Perhaps, but <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Being spirit-filled is not so much about the way you express. The way you express yourself is usually just personality. Um, some, of, some people can look at the words on the screen and sing and just hands to the sky, and some could sing and still have the same affection and the same passion for Jesus. And so to be filled with the Spirit, to be led with the Spirit, has nothing to do with the way that we move our body. If you're not a swayer, then don't sway. If you're a swayer, sway to the right, to the left, do all that. Just be cognizant of the people next to you, all right? Do it in an orderly, orderly manner. So the reason why we get there and we kind of have this dichotomy is because oftentimes we, we have a bad understanding of the Holy Spirit. Even, even functionally, when we begin to speak about the Holy Spirit, um, we talk about the Holy Spirit as an it. What does it do? And the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a who. It's a third person of the, of the, the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit is, moved, is used over 90 times. In the New Testament, it's used over 250 times. So the Bible does speak about the spirit. And when it uses in those words, it refers to it as wind or breath, communicating the activity of God, the movement of God, the power of God, ultimately in the New Testament, in and through the work of God's people to do things, to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to do the works of services. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so he is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. That's who he is. Um, he's distinct from the Father, and he's distinct from the Son. He is the Spirit, and he, he's sent by Jesus to the life and in the life of the church and those who believe in Jesus. Now, this next part is it talks about the role of the Spirit. And we're going to take the next few times, the Scripture will be on the stage, so we need to turn there, and looking at seven things for sure that we know for certain of the Holy Spirit. 
his role and what he does. The first thing is the spirit convicts. In John chapter 16, in the gospel of John, Jesus is talking to his, his servants, his disciples, about why he has to leave in order to send the Holy Spirit and why we need the Holy Spirit. And so we see the spirit convicts. Uh, chapter 16, verse seven. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is to be judged. The first thing that the Spirit does as a means of grace in our life, it convicts us, he convicts us of sin. He convicts us of the righteousness of God and the judgment of God. And so we see, biblically, that's what the Spirit does. The next thing we see that the Spirit does is that the Spirit himself converts and brings about conversion. In John chapter three, there's this great story um, of Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes secretly to Jesus and he wants to talk to him about how to earn or how to receive eternal life. And so Jesus begins to talk to him and says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus, being very smart, says biologically, that is impossible and gross at the same time, right? There's no way that I can be born again. And Jesus communicates to him, you need to be born of the Spirit meaning there's something that needs to happen outside of you. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And so the Holy Spirit converts. And the language there that we have theologically and biblically is regeneration. Titus chapter three, five, verse five says this. He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what that means is you and me, born into this world by nature and by choice, are sinners. And that given 10 out of 10 times, we would not choose God. Yet, God, in his infinite love for us, sends his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit renews or regenerates, opens up our hearts to respond to the truth of the gospel. And so what the Spirit does, it convicts us of the vileness of our own sin and then simultaneously shows us the beauty of redemption is seen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit convicts and then the Spirit converts. Uh, thirdly, we see that the Spirit applies. The Spirit applies the work of Jesus Christ, his work, to our life. And so in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 9, Paul, talking about the Spirit's work in our life, says this. Verses 9 through 11, You, however, are not of the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, this is, this is, uh, this, this right here, this understanding of Jesus applying, or the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ to our life um, is the linchpin of Protestant Christianity. W what this means is, functionally, we need to get this. When the Spirit applies Jesus' word to us, ultimately this is this. Jesus takes our record. Our record is a record of sin. Our record is worthy and deserving of God's wrath and punishment, and Jesus takes that on the cross. That's what it means when it says Jesus is our substitute for death. He died the death that we should have died. Jesus also lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't, a life of righteousness, the righteous life that God required. And so Jesus now takes his record, his perfect, his perfect life, and he offers it to God on our behalf. The Holy Spirit takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to our record. 
functionally, we don't get this. Most of us got up this morning and we responded ultimately to God or came to God on the basis of what we did the night before. And so if we had a good week or a good night, we came before the Lord with boldness and thanksgiving. If we had a bad night or a not so good week, we don't come with the same boldness. Because what we show functionally is that we are, we are trusting in our active righteousness of which we have none. Instead of Christ's righteousness, which is passive, which he gives to us freely by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what that means is, if it's true, which it is, the Spirit takes Christ's record, applies it to us. So now Jesus, the Father, when he sees us, sees Christ's record. He doesn't see your moral lapse. He doesn't even see your moral success. But he treats you, he loves you, um, he engages you um, the way that he would his son, his one and son in whom he loved. That, that, that's so important because there's nothing in you that can offer righteousness to God, but yet the Spirit now applies it to your life. The term there is imputed righteousness. Therefore, we can wake up every single morning thanking Jesus, praising Jesus, because we know that we are fully accepted and fully loved and fully covered by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Amen? The Spirit does that freely. Uh, the fourth thing we see the Spirit does is the Spirit glorifies. And so Jesus, again, in John chapter 16, talking about the Spirit, teaching the Spirit, he says this in um, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will speak, he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You've heard me say this, and you'll hear me say it all over again. If you really want to know, just in a nutshell, what is the role of the Spirit? It's to point to Jesus. It's to take everything of who we are and point us to Jesus. And so the thought is this, the Spirit is selfless in that it always points and glorifies the work of Christ. Um, illustration of this would be growing up, um, I wanted to be one particular athlete in, in um, Magic Johnson. Uh, Magic Johnson to me was the best point guard ever and still is the best point guard ever. I know you guys are Suns fans. In heaven, you will see which is the better team, the Lakers. But there's a sense where I put posters of Magic Johnson. I wanted to be like Showtime. I tried to smile like Magic Johnson. Um, it, it, the posters inspired me. I mean, I put my backpack on the morning, see Magic? It's right. Go to school, right? And, and it was a great, it, it was inspiring. That, in, in, in a sense, the Spirit points to Jesus to inspire us to look at, to adore, and to worship Jesus, not anyone else. In fact, J.R. Packer says it this way, the Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but get to know him, go to him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, and have life, and get to know him, and taste his gift of joy and peace. And so you know when you have evidence, the evidence of the Spirit in your life is when you are constantly pointing to Jesus. And not in a superficial way where you feel like every conversation has to end in Jesus, but in your everyday life that you're pointing to Jesus and you're pointing to others, you're not pointing to yourself. That is evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. Now, keeping with that illustration about me and my pictures of Magic Johnson, I don't have them anymore, but those pictures of Magic Johnson, um, the next thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit sanctifies. You see, I can look at a picture of Magic Johnson, and I can aspire to be like Magic, but here's, here's a, here, there's a, I'm not Magic Johnson. He's 6'9", I'm barely 5 feet, I couldn't really play basketball that well, he played for the Lakers, I played for my junior high basketball team, it just was never going to, the only similarities that me and Magic Johnson had were we were both black, and ended there, right? 
Unlike that, the Spirit not only points us to, to Jesus through I glorify him, the Spirit sanctifies us, or in essence enables us now by the Spirit, which is a means of God's grace, that we can now live like Jesus. That the believer in Jesus Christ, because of the Spirit now, sin does not have dominion over you. And so there's, there's gifts that God gives us, which we'll talk about in a second, but the Spirit empowers us to walk in a way that emulates, resembles an ingratitude in response to the love that, that Jesus has given us that we can live like Jesus. So it sanctifies us. Um, a famous passage for that would be Galatians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. First in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And whenever you see that in the Bible, walk, walk has the idea that it's a participle, meaning as you go, continuous. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jump down to verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul is saying is this. We have been given the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we produce in ourselves, but it's something that God produces in every believer. So therefore, you and I, in Christ Jesus, now being sanctified are being made more and more like Jesus. And, and the good news of that is God will continue to give us his Spirit, continue to carry us and guide us. Uh, the, the next thing, number six, that we see of the Spirit that we know is that the Spirit equips I mean, the Spirit not only empowers, enables the believer to live as a Christian and to see Jesus, but the Spirit also does this by edifying the body. And the way that the Spirit does this is he gives gifts. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all to everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so... Spiritual gifts. The Spirit gives spiritual gifts. Every single person here that believes in Jesus has a spiritual gift. Um, what I would say is you probably have a gift mix, meaning there's probably a few gifts. The question that comes from that is, do I need to go know my gifts? Yeah, I think it's helpful because what Paul communicates is God's given you those gifts, not for yourself, um, not to say, look what gift I have, not even to show off those gifts, but to use those gifts for the edifying and for the common good of the building up of the body. So when you don't exercise your gift within the context of the local congregation, we're handicapped. There's gifts that you have that we need in order for us to continue to grow and to know and to serve Jesus Christ. And so the question from there is, how do I know my gifts? Do I need to take a test on the computer? Here's the best way. Begin serving. Get in a community. When you're in community doing life with other people, people begin to see things about you and they're able to speak into your life. Um, maybe they say, hey, you know what? You have a compassion for people who are constantly hurting. You may have the gift of compassion. Um, you love to serve like crazy. You may have the gift of ser service. You're able to teach and every time you teach the word, it, I feel like God's speaking to me. You may have the gift of teaching. And no matter where you are in your gifts, God continues to grow you. He matures you over time. As you grow in your maturity as a Christian, those gifts become to be, to be better and people receive them and the, and the gospel is going forth because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you through those gifts. I gotta say something about gifts. There's, there's, there's a spectrum of people that believe different things about spiritual gifts and mainly the gifts that are more supernatural, which I think all of them are supernatural because they're from the Spirit, but um, gifts of healing and tongues and prophecy. On this side of the spectrum, you have people who believe the gifts have ceased, 
And what they would say is that since the Bible is fully complete, the 66 books that we have here, um, once that was completed, we didn't need the gifts of tongues. We don't need the gifts of prophecy anymore. And so they would say those gifts have ceased. God doesn't give those gifts to the church anymore. On the other side of the spectrum, you have people who would say, no, 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 those gifts are active and they're fully active and, and you should have those as an evidence of faith, especially the gift of tongues. And so they would say, if you have the gift, if you don't have the gift of tongues, it's hard to know if you are a Christian. It's evidence of your faith. And so as redemption where we stand at, it's somewhere in the middle. It's arrogant as that sounds, we're the most balanced church around. We're not, not, trying, to, we're not trying to say that. Here's, here's what we believe when it comes to spiritual gifts. We believe and we hold that the Bible teaches that all gifts are active today, including the gifts of healing and of tongues and of prophecy. Um, we believe that if they are to be conducted, they are to be conducted in a biblical manner, um, yet they are to be exercised. When Paul says that you should earnestly seek the gifts, it's okay to seek those gifts. But if you have those gifts, they are to be exercised in a biblical manner. So what about the extremes? This is what I would say about the extremes. Can they become members of Redemption Church? Absolutely. I would just let you know that you should know that none of your elders believe to the extremes. None of the elders of any of the campuses at Redemption believe the extremes that the gifts have ceased or you need to have them as evidence of salvation. And so that's where we are. And you're going to get even more where I stand as we continue to go and talk about prophecies. I keep telling people, as this message goes, we'll speak in tongues and prophecy before the night's over, right? Last thing that we see about the Spirit is the Spirit promises. So we see the Spirit convicts, converts, applies, glorifies, sanctifies, equips, and promises. So Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, um, just gives us good news here in verse 13. He says, in him, speaking of Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so what Paul is saying there, if you're a Christian here, as soon as you believe the gospel, like the first time you believed, you were given the Holy Spirit. In fact, what we learned earlier, you can only believe because you were given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a promise. It's God's promise. It's a down payment, meaning you will be God's forever. And so when you hear language like once saved, always saved, this is what he's communicating, that God does not reverse what he's given you. He doesn't take it back. You did nothing to earn it. You will do nothing to lose it. That's comforting in the life of a believer. What that also means is that he who began a good work will finish it until completion. That means God is more concerned um, and more, more convicted about your sanctification than you are. That, that God is more for you growing more and more like Jesus than you are. So even in your deepest, weakest moments, that the Spirit is still at work in you. Even in your most sinful moments, the Spirit is still at work in you. In fact, Paul says later, that the Spirit himself testifies with your spirit that you are a child, and it cries, Abba, Father. The reason why the Spirit does that, it reminds you of whom you belong to. It's good news. God never leaves his children, ever. Amen? Seven things that he has here, and these things that we have, we know for certain. Meaning, when people say, okay, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? You can list these seven things and say, for sure, explicitly, it's the reason why we took the time to go through different texts to see biblically that these things are certain. We know the Spirit convicts. We know the Spirit converts. We know the Spirit applies. We know it glorifies and sanctifies and equips and it promises. We, the Spirit does all these things. The question now is, does the Spirit do anything else? Does the Spirit do more than this? Maybe. Maybe not. 
Don't you like the ambiguity in that? All right. Maybe, maybe not. And what we do know, if there is more, it, it's conjecture and subjective at best. Meaning, because it's not explicitly in the Bible, doesn't mean that the Spirit is not doing more, but we cannot say with full confidence in the Word, like absolutely 100% sure that that, that's the Spirit, but at the same time, we can't say that it's not. Um, In fact, the Bible lets us know in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, that we should test the spirits. And then Paul takes us right here to where we are in our text. I promise you, we get there. In chapter 5, verse 19, this is what he says. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise, despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every evil form. So meaning, there, there is a work. God is doing something. God could be doing something, and Paul gives us to us. He gives us some imperatives here. First, he starts with the negative imperative when it comes to the work of the spirit. It says first, do not quench the spirit. And so here's what that means. Um, you hear in your Bible, do not quench the spirit and do not grieve the spirit. Uh, to quench the spirit is not to do what God's called you to do. To not do what God's called you to do. To grieve the spirit is to do what God has never told you to do. To do what God told you not to do. Sorry. Dang it, this ASU degree, man. It keeps getting at me. And so here, here I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it again. I've been, I know, I know. One, one of these days we're going to get it right. Um, so when it comes to quenching the spirit, quenching the spirit is God's called you to do something, and then you don't do it. God's told you to do something explicitly and you don't do it. So husbands, God's told you to love your wives and lay your life down. You're supposed to do that. And then wives, you're supposed to love your husband and serve him. You're supposed to do that. Uh, when scripture is explicit about loving your neighbor, caring for the poor, we are supposed to do that. When we don't do that, we are quenching God's spirit. I, I constantly hear people say, I just want to be in tune with the spirit. I want to be sensitive with the spirit. You want to know how to be in tune with the spirit? Do what God calls you to do. And make a habit out of it. Make a routine out of it. Not out of, out of duty, but out of joy and out of delight because God has freed you, enabled you by the Spirit to be able to do it. Especially the things that are explicit. Now, there are things implicitly that God has for you individually that he's calling you to do. And when you don't do it, you are quenching the Spirit of God in your life. Some of you guys, it's confession of sin. That you know without a doubt, I have something I need to confess to somebody else. If you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a friend, I have something that I'm supposed to confess to you, and you know it. I don't know it. It's implicit in the sense that it's, it's for you. It's subjective. It's for you. You know it. I don't know who you are, but God does, and you know, and you've been holding it off. When you do that, you're quenching the spirit. Some of you, it comes down to speaking truth into somebody else's life, that you know there's something about the truth of the scripture that doesn't add up with your friend who says that he or she is a believer, and that you know that you've been called by God to apply that truth in their life and a way of love, and a way of encouragement, in some ways is a way, a way of rebuke, and yet, you won't do it. Another case that this happens could be at the workplace, in the marketplace, and that, that you've been given an opportunity to share the gospel. And not in the broad sense where we've all been called to evangelize, but specifically, you. Um, and you have that person who you know, today's the day, today's the day, and then you don't do it. Today's the day, today's the day, and you don't do it. And, and you could be, you could be quenching the spirit. And Paul says, don't, don't quench the spirit. Don't, don't implying that the spirit is at work. The spirit does not want to be quenched. And the language there is that of putting out a fire. It's like, don't put out the fire. Let, let it flame. Let, let, let it continue to burn. Let, let God continue to grow in you through the obedience that he gives you ultimately through Christ Jesus. Paul goes on, verse 20, in the first, this first part of verse 21, he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And there's another word we have there, prophecies. 
And so the question is, first, what is prophecy? Let me tell you what prophecy is not first. When Paul begins to talk about prophecy, he's not talking about this scripture. Um, he's not talking about the 66 books that we have, the infallible word of God that we can't add to or take away. He's not talking about that. Um, he's talking about something different. In fact, Wayne Grudem has a quote here in Prophecy in the New Testament. He says this, the exercise of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, the New Testament church entails reporting in human words something that God spontaneously brings to the mind of the believer. Meaning that God gives words to people that he gives words to people for a particular person or a particular group or even for a church and that God begins to speak. It's not his scripture. It's not equal to his scripture. It's not above his scripture, but it's something in which God supplements for a particular person for a particular time. And listen, when it comes from God, this is what you need to know because this is how God speaks, even when it's through another person. It should come with authority because God speaks in authority and it also should come with clarity, meaning it should make sense. Um, and the reason why Paul says do not despise it is because if you're like me, you've had people speak to you with, without authority or with authority but without clarity. Um, people that say things like, oh, I see you. You're a tree and then you're a porcupine and then somehow that's supposed to lead you to this, this you know, river or something. You have no idea. And you said that doesn't make any sense. And then people would say, well, in the Old Testament, God talked like that. Well, here's the deal. When he talks about the tree of Lebanon, they knew about the tree of Lebanon. We live in Tempe, all right? We don't know about that. And so when God speaks, he will speak with clarity. And the other reason why I think Paul has it, do not despise the prophecies, is because it's our natural tendency. Because if we watch TV and we see Christian television, we see some of the silliness that happens and we go, there's no way. There's no way. Or if we've had people tell us things, um, God told me to do this, or God told me this about you, and you keep saying, okay, God keeps telling me this. Can you tell God to tell me this, please, at just one time, please? Just, I'd love for God to say that. And that's not to mock that by any means, because I, I believe in prophecy. I'm just saying it's easy for us to despise it. And Paul says, no, don't. Don't despise it. In fact, he goes on to say, just test it. So when, come, when someone comes to you and says they have the word of the Lord, test it. One of the ways that we can test it is this way. Um, the people who are telling you, are they loyal to God? So when someone comes to you and says, I, I believe that God is telling, you, telling me to tell you something, are they loyal to God? Is what they say consistent with the Bible? If it is not consistent with the Bible, take it away. Meaning if it contradicts the Bible, no way. Um, I've had at least on two occasions, a, men, a man and a woman say to me, you know what, I think God's calling me to divorce my, my spouse. I'm like, really? Because that's weird. Um, the scriptures say that that's like the opposite of what God's calling you to do. That doesn't make any sense, right? No biblical grounds for divorce there. And so it has to be consistent with the text. And then is what they describe or what they predict accurate? Does it, does it come to pass? Are they just saying things? Um, this is not to dig on this guy, but this was like the whole, like the world was gonna end a few weeks ago or whatnot. Like this is, this is, what, this is what Paul is saying here. There are some people who will say things that just won't come to pass. Next thing he says is, is their is there character Christ-like? Do they embody the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does their word build up and encourage the church in truth? And lastly, do the elders of your church affirm their word? I think when it comes to it when, it, when you have something like that, you don't have to move quick. You can go to your community, your redemption community, and say, hey guys, here's what I've been given, and be able to weigh in. The Bible says with many counselors, you will succeed. And then you can come to the elders of your church. God, by his Holy Spirit, has appointed us to be elders of this church. And then we can look at it and say, not that we're God, but pray with you and intercede with you and say, God, is this what you were doing in this particular person or this particular group's life. And that's what you do. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat weary in some ways about people who begin to talk about what God says, not because I don't believe them, because they, when they speak in authority, they speak in, 
Like it's objective and it's not. Meaning, if someone's gonna say, they could say, I think God is saying this. God could be saying this as opposed to saying, thus says the Lord. Because when they say, thus says the Lord, now they're putting it as equal as scripture. And the scripture, the canon, it's closed. It's not equal to scripture. Just be clear about that. But if they come to you and they speak truth and it seems to be pointing you to Jesus and you can go through this good grid, it says hold fast to it. Um, I think I've shared this with you before. The, the reason why I believe in prophecy, one, I do believe first and foremost biblically that, that the, the gift exists today and that certain people have the gift of prophecy and that God does communicate through people. I totally believe that. And one of the ways I believe that, it's the way that I became a Christian. Um, I like to describe it that me and my friends were going one way, me and the boys I kicked it with and the girls I hung out with, and, um, and all of a sudden, God in his sovereign grace says, you're done, and he changed my life. And the way that he did that, I wasn't in a church service, I didn't come to a church, I didn't sign a card or walk down an aisle. Um, I was at a friend's house watching TV, and uh, probably something non-Christian, but it didn't matter because I wasn't a Christian yet anyway, God forgive me. And so well, I was there, and then I got a phone call from a lady and it just started off all bad. One, this is old lady, and, and she calls me, and she goes, hey, Ricardo, this is such and such, she said her name, and I'm in your mom's prayer group, and I have a word from God. I'm like, oh, great. This is exactly what I needed this Saturday morning, right? And then she just proceeded to unpack and to tell things about me that no one knew. I mean, in detail, like, like thoughts that I was having. Um, I had a about two or three weeks dreams that were devastating to me. And she began to interpret these dreams and tell me why they were and how God was trying to draw me to himself. And, and, and then she just began to just, just, just in details to the point where she said, hey, you know that pain behind your belly button? I'm like, oh. Right? And, and, and she goes, yeah, God's doing something. He's trying to make you a new man from the, from the inside. And, and then now I'm freaking out. And my friend's looking at me, and she's like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm about to die. And so I'm, look, I'm looking through the, the blinds and stuff. I'm like, the end is coming. Oh, no, right? And, 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 and then finally, um, the, 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 the linchpin for me is when, because I was struggling with, I don't know if you guys have ever been there. No, some of you have been there, where I felt like I was at a point in my walk it wasn't even a walk because I definitely wasn't walking with the Lord. I was at a point in my life that I felt like I had crossed the threshold. Like my sin had just exceeded everybody else's. And you get to that point and the lie is, since you've already crossed it, just keep going. You're far too gone. And yet what this lady said, verbatim, she said, and I know you're thinking you're far too God, gone. God wants to let me know that he will forgive you of your past and your present and of your future. And I just lost it. And I said, okay, what do I do? And um, she proceeded to tell me, get on your knees and run to God. And that makes sense to most of us now, but you realize when you've been around a Christians, you just use language that doesn't make any sense, really, when you think about it. Because she was like, get on your knees and run to God. I'm like, oh, my knees, how fast do you want me to run? <laughs> Christians. <laughs> but she, she spoke. She spoke to me. And, and here's why I believe it was biblical. One, um, I didn't know this lady one, so I couldn't tell her Christ-likeness. I didn't even meet her until two years later. And when I met her, she was just a normal little old black lady with a nice dress and a big hat that she wore on Sundays. And for whatever reason, God spoke to her. And what he spoke to her pointed me to Jesus. At the end of all those tests, when Paul says, if you can test it and it points you to Jesus, hold fast to it. He says, hold fast to what is good. Meaning if prophecy points you to be more like Christ, 
If it points you in your life or your direction, it tells you to move from one place to the next place because you will speak to more people about Jesus or you yourself will come to know Jesus more, it's good. It's good. Not because it was my experience. I would tell you this, just because I experienced it doesn't make it true or right. What makes it right is because it's biblical. We can't base everything off an experience, and nor do I communicate that story to say, if that's not your story, then somehow God doesn't love you that much. Absolutely not. The whole purpose of that story was I was so wicked and flawed that God had to speak through an old lady with a big hat to get my attention. (laughs) To get my attention, ultimately, to point to Jesus. And my life changed. That's what prophecy is supposed to do. It's to point us to the person and the work of Jesus. And Paul says, when you've tested it, hold fast to it. Hold, cling to it. Cling to the things of Jesus. Run to the things of Jesus. Hold on to the things of Jesus Christ because that's what matters and that's what the Spirit does. And Paul closes in verse 22 when he says, abstain from every evil form or every form of evil. Now, I gotta back up and just communicate this real quick because many of us, many of you grew up in church and you had a King James translation. And then the King James translation, verse 22, says something to the nature of keep away, stay away, abstain from the, even the appearance of evil. Because the way the King James is translated and the way that it's written, each sentence is like its own paragraph. So it seems as if that Paul's shifting gears, but he's not. But because of that, we've taken that verse and to say stay away from the appearance of evil to mean don't do bad things. Stay away from things that could be potentially sinful. Don't wear clothes like cross colors, whatever it may be. Don't, don't, don't play poker. Uh, don't, don't dance if you do. You know, if you dance, you'll probably get pregnant. Uh, don't, 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 don't have a glass of wine. You'll probably have 60. And it's like, no, that's not, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. When, when it, it says stay away from every form of evil, Paul is, one, Paul is not saying that you, sh- that you should dance either. Some of you, your ability tells you you shouldn't dance, right? You don't need scripture to tell you that. This, well, what I'm saying is trying to guard us from legalism. What Paul is communicating is not that you should have a glass of wine or you should dance or that you shouldn't. Um, I'm just trying to say what Paul says. It's in the context of prophecy. It's in the context of teaching about don't quench the spirit. And so when Paul says first, there's a juxtapose. He says, hold fast to what is good, singular, because the one good thing is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, abstain from every form or all kinds of evil. When it comes to prophecy, there's only one good, Jesus. And there's many forms, many kinds of evil. Because at the end of the day, there will be people who will come to you and speak and try to manipulate you and try to abuse you in the name of Jesus. They will try to take your money. They will try to, it's happening. It happens all around us. Some of you have experienced it. And the sad thing about it is, it's people like me. People who God has given an incredible amount of favor, responsibility, somewhat of a charismatic gift, and a woman or a man who will get up and say things. This is what God's told you to do. Marry this person, do this, move over here. And it's not, and it's harmful and it abuses people, and it hurts people, and it makes people leave the church and have a terrible taste of Jesus in their mouth when it, because it was never about Jesus. And so Paul says, you gotta be careful with that. Does God speak? Yes, primarily through his word. Does he speak in utterances? Does he speak through the spirit in prophecies? Absolutely, absolutely. But test it. Hold fast what is good and be aware and have a keen sense of discernment when it's evil, amen? So what do we do? What do we do? How do we grow in our awareness of the Spirit? How do we grow in understanding the gifts of the Spirit, um, the get our own gifts? Um, Jesus lets us know in Luke chapter 11, and I'll close with this. 
Like everything else, it points to Jesus. Luke teaching to his disciples. They come to him and they say, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Like John's disciple taught him. And Jesus teaches him the Lord's Prayer. Then he shares his story. And he shares his story about this man whose friends come in the middle of the night and says, we need bread because we got friends here. And he goes, no, my kids are sleeping. And they keep saying, we need bread, we need bread. And finally he gives them bread. And then Jesus points and he said, you see what this man did? Don't you, if your son came to you, if he, if he asked you for a piece of fish, would you give him a scorpion? No. And then he goes on to verse 13, which I think is somewhat ironic and hilarious. He says in verse 13, if you then who are evil, which I'm sure that went over well. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Meaning as Christians, we've been given the Holy Spirit because God has regenerated our hearts. He's not taking the Spirit away from us. What we need to ask for is a better understanding, a clearer understanding of the role of the Spirit in our life. To be more sensitive, to be more in tune, to be aware of the Spirit so that we can love Jesus more, we can see Jesus more clearly, understand his word more clearly, serve others more clearly, be more generous, that we in our lives in response to Jesus. Jesus says, because of what I've done for you, you can go to the Father and you can continuously ask him for the Holy Spirit. That's a promise for the believer. And so we have to keep knocking. We should ask, God, give me a clear understanding of your Holy Spirit. Earnestly desire the gifts that I may manifest these gifts, not for my sake, but for the sake of the glorifying of your name and the building up of your body. Amen? Um, I, I, every time I think about this, I, I look at this and it says, ask and knock. If you are here and you're not a Christian and you want to believe in Jesus and you want to be a Christian, um, the question usually is, do, do I need to ask? Do I need to knock? Do I need to ask for the Holy Spirit? And I would say, no. Here's why. Because of what the Bible teach about the nature of the human heart and how wicked and vile that it is, the fact that you are here that you, and you would want to become a Christian um, shows that the Spirit is probably already at work in your heart. Because apart from a holy, sovereign God, you would not want to love Jesus unless Jesus already had showed the love that he has for you. And so, let me tell you what you could do. Get on your knees and run to God, all right? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, <laughs> we, Heavenly Father, we ask you for your Holy Spirit. And God, we even ask for the Holy Spirit even in this moment, God, that you would do in us, Lord, what we wouldn't normally ask, think, or imagine. Your word says that you do abundantly more than we ask. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are doing that. Spirit, we thank you that you intercede for us when we don't know how to pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you point to Jesus. And in Jesus, we see that we have redemption. We have been transferred from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. And Father, we thank you that in your doing, that you decide in your infinite wisdom to bring a people to yourself, to draw people to yourself, Lord as though kicking and screaming. God, the story that I shared of myself is not just my story, it's everybody's story. God, we were all on a wrong path, we were all on our own directions, and you and your infinite love came to us by your spirit at some point, whether we were four or whether we were 70, but your love for us, Lord, overwhelmed us, Lord. God, you never scared us to become Christians, but you loved us into loving Jesus. Your word is clear and it's so true. We love you, God, because you first loved us. So God, as we become people who live in response to your gospel, God, I pray that we would never grow old to the truth of Jesus and to the life of Jesus. And so Lord, when we become stagnant, would you stir our affections by your spirit? Would you remind us by your spirit that we are your children and, that, and the spirit within us may cry out, Abba, Father. God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would be glorified 
even in the rest of our service as we worship you through song, through giving, and through communion. In Jesus' name, amen.